0: Thanks very much, Sujit. <laughs> <laughs> Guys, I, I guess the, presentation, uh, the, the essence of uh, this uh, uh, little uh, discussion um, is that no matter how convinced we are, if we regard ourselves as systems engineers, of the worth of systems engineering, unless we convince people uh, who are decision-makers regarding funding, regarding planning, regarding resources... Uh, regarding the balance of effort over time, uh, that it adds value, uh, then it ain't going to happen. And so, and I would also add, if it doesn't add value, then a jolly well shouldn't happen. So we need to be pretty well convinced ourselves that anything we do in systems engineering uh, on a balance of probabilities is value adding. Now, had you asked me three years ago to make a convincing, scientifically a convincing case based on, let's say, scientific quality evidence that systems engineering is good stuff, I honestly couldn't do that. I could uh, recite many anecdotes and individual instances, a lot of tragic project outcomes and clear, traceable causes of them, but it wouldn't be really convincing. It certainly wouldn't be scientific quality evidence. Today, it's a different story. There's been terrific work gone on over the last three years, uh, and even more uh, ramping up at the moment. On the basis of the work that had gone on to date, uh, the work that has gone on to date has been so convincing. Uh, from a modest but but certainly very very um, valid uh, spectrum of sample projects and companies, uh, that a, a new project is ramping up to spread the. Uh, degree of representation, the diversity uh, of types of companies, or the number of companies considerably, and, and conducted an even more in-depth study uh, with great confidence uh, of uh, providing uh, more data. Now, the original study was to determine, and we'll talk about the study, but the original study was to determine whether, in fact, systems entry has any value. It, it was an open-mind study, uh, and the conclusion could have been, no, it's a whole waste of time. we we wasting our time with all this, you know, this sort of religious fervour about systems engineering. Uh, but in fact, of course, that wasn't the outcome at all, and I'll discuss the outcome of the most convincing study with you in some length. And, and so that uh, has really uh, set the scene for the new study uh, in confidence of the value of systems engineering, well established from an initial study, but now with much more data. Now. We're going to look at systems engineering and value initially uh, and and concepts of value and different business models uh, and the outcomes that represent value for different business models. We're going to start at the start. If we want to convince somebody of the value of systems engineering, first thing we need to do is identify that there is a problem or there is an opportunity. And if there isn't, if everything is perfect, if everything is wonderful and couldn't be better, then any concept of doing stuff to make improvement is, is just not relevant. Uh, and so the initial convincing, if, if that's what we're trying to do, must uh, establish the existence of a problem or an opportunity. We'll have a look at uh, a number of studies from a fairly diverse range of countries and sources uh, and uh, draw some conclusions there, I think. And then we'll look in more detail at return on investment in, in a rather quantitative way for one aspect of systems engineering. Uh, I'm hoping that, uh, the study that I've referred to, that is uh, of larger scope, uh, will provide a lot of data in other facets of systems engineering, perhaps of, of something uh, approaching maybe the same degree of detail and persuasiveness. And uh, then when we finish, <laughs> we'll party. <laughs> because it's Christmas coming up. <laughs> Scary as that is. Oop, oh, mm, okay, we'd better go backwards. Now... Uh, what constitutes value uh, from the performance of any activity uh, very much depends on who we are and, and what our objective is. So if we're a, a commercial company, a lot of value uh, is, of course, commercial value, financial value, profit. Now, profit is not the only driver to companies. Uh, if that were the case, most companies would be drug dealers uh, in the current, current climate. Uh, so there are other values that companies hold, and uh, I, I, I'm always reminded of a company in New Zealand where the owner is absolutely passionately New Zealand, a New Zealander, uh, and uh, passionate about his community, and everything he does is driven by two major drivers. One is, one is profit, but the other is serving his community. And his trade-off uh, is strongly more community service at the uh, forfeiture of profit. So companies um, have a diversity of values, potentially, just as we as individuals do, and as, say, not-for-profit government organisations do. They have their, their charter or their mission uh, but, and, and uh, the criteria on which they are judged to be successful. And uh, in the public sector, Uh, Profit is not, in most cases, except for government business enterprises, not normally a significant part of that. Now, I've shown here uh, three different business models, actually four. We'll have a look at the last one after. Uh, An internal project It's not actually well... It's not actually shown there. Oh, well, not to worry. On this axis, uh, we have uh, a scale of benefit to customer. And this uh, zero to a thousand scale is uh, a a scale that brings together all the outcomes that somebody, a customer, internal or external, values. Now, there are ways of bringing together all sorts of disparate outcomes, financial, timing, capability, safety, all sorts of things into common uh, units of value that can be aggregated. And zero is a threshold acceptability on this scale and 1,000 is as good as we could ever hope to achieve. And uh, if we're serving, uh, doing our engineering um, internally within an enterprise, uh, then we're aiming to simply maximise that on that scale. And so when we talk about the uh, uh, benefit of systems engineering, then the criteria is how well do we do that? How well do we get along that axis? Now, on the other hand, if we're a for-profit company, We have a relationship between an external customer to the company and its interests versus the interests of the company, which is on this axis. And I've shown here a purely monetary uh, measure, increase in net present value. That could be alternatively increase, uh, let's say, um, uh, contribution to gross margin or earnings per share or some other purely commercial value. Uh, or it could be a mixture of outcomes, as I described earlier, on that axis there. And for a company, as it increases the benefit to its customer, if it's unconcerned, just just delivers at the threshold of acceptability down there, uh, then if it doesn't mess up its injury and its management, it stands to make some money. On the other hand, where it wants to be is over here, where uh, it is maximising its return in accordance with its values, Uh, by providing greater benefit to its customer. Customer satisfaction is actually really a real asset to a company. It has a a present value, uh, current value in short term, but it also has a future value in terms of future business from that customer and other customers. So we can bring that to net present value uh, and seek to maximise that. Now, over there, we don't need to talk about too much, but a company down there is uh, not destined to a long future if it stays down there. Now that's for, this this blue one uh, is for an organization, uh, how do I put it, Uh, that does its engineering uh, after some agreement or contract is entered into. So it has a captive customer. Now by contrast, a lot of engineering, and in fact some of the best implementations, are in the uh, product-oriented company world where companies develop products in anticipation of sales, anticipating what the market needs or will need, uh, and in some cases injuring the market market perception or market values, like Apple does very well. And its profile is more like that. Greater opportunity, greater um, return on sales in that sector than, say, in the captive customer sector, the systems house sector, which is the blue curve, and... Uh, a relatively greater degree of customer satisfaction. Now, when we talk about the performance of systems engineering, the return on investment, or the uh, value that systems engineering contributes, it has to be in the terms that represent value to the enterprise for which the, the systems engineering is supposed to be serving. And that is along these lines. I've shown... Uh, a little red one there, which is the uh, internet scam company business model. <laughs> where customer satisfaction doesn't figure. So when we judge uh, the value of systems engineering, then it must be in these sort of terms. Not necessarily in all detail, but at least uh, in principle and conceptually. Now, systems engineering isn't limited in its application to great high technology systems and you know, electrons and large projects. In fact, we can think of systems engineering in many respects as basic principles and supporting methods for solving problems. Uh, and uh, if we're trying to get all that stuff somewhere, uh, we, have a, we haven't solved the problem. We have a big problem. We uh, have very poorly engineered that system solution. So systems engineering, uh, if we want to sell it, Uh, can be reasonably represented in those terms of general principles, sound principles, demonstrably proven principles, I think we can now claim, uh, of problem solving, irrespective of the problem. Now, to put uh, it in a more technical context, we have another one here, the direct equivalent of the previous diagram, but with a somewhat higher technology content and a rather more expensive outcome. Now... People have been concerned about return on investment for engineering activities and studying the relationship between how things are done and what is achieved for a long time. This data here on the application of concurrent engineering, which is one aspect of systems engineering which emphasises the concurrent, collaborative and balanced development of whatever our system is. You know, Let's say it's an aircraft or coffee-making machine. and and the aircraft or coffee-making machine production system, the aircraft or coffee-making machine maintenance system. Uh, And that's one aspect of how we'll do engineering, both in technical terms and also in uh, some aspects management terms. And uh, we see some old study results that throw some light on the subject uh, regarding return on investment, uh, the correlation of outcomes with practice, somewhat... You know, the highest figures up to this, up to that. But people have been doing this sort of stuff for a long time. What has been lacking is really solid, uh, scientifically-based stuff. Now, we'll see some of that and the results of some of that a little bit later. If we didn't have any opportunities for improvement, now, generally or within a company, there'd be no point trying to sell any different practice to what we're presently doing. What we're presently doing is obviously as good as we need to do. We're doing things right. If, we can't do, if there's no way to do better, we, we're doing things right. If there is no problem, then we don't need a solution to that. Or if there is no opportunity, we don't need a solution. So if we want to assess uh, benefits of systems engineering, it could only be with reference to some problem or opportunity. Now, when we look at the studies, innumerable studies, on the results of projects, Well, it's pretty depressing. It's depressing when that study was done, and it it remains very depressing. For example, the same group that did this study uh, does an annual study. Their last study that I've seen, which is the 2010 version, uh, put the proportion of successful uh, IT sector projects at 24%. 76% totally failed or were significantly success challenged, to use an interesting phrase. <laughs> now, that is hardly something to be enthusiastic and very satisfied about. Sure, it's an improvement, but my goodness, how far do we have to go in that sector? And uh, with a very wide range of uh, study contributions in that sector, I would add. Now, this, this uh, pie chart, is showing uh, su- basically success and failure. Now there are other metrics that we can look at. Oh no, what's happened there? What if I? Oh, I hit the wrong thing. Okay, if I hit that. Oh my dear. Oh, it's okay. We'll, we'll, we'll get there. Uh, we'll just zip through these. Getting there. Here we go. We're back here. I'm glad it wasn't on page 704. <laughs> 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 Same study. Uh, looked at cost overruns for these projects, uh, and against plan, against budget, uh, and you see the figures: 89% on average, and distribution. It's pretty ugly. Only 15% under 20% cost overrun. So if we're in that sector, we have a problem. There is no doubt. There is a problem. It's happened there. There we go. Uh, schedule. Even in terms of percentage, even worse, 122% average overrun. And uh, again, just under 15%, less than 20% overrun. Man, is that ugly. Ooh, whoops, go back. There we go. Quality. Uh, Fitness for intended use is the way I like to look at quality. Here the measure has been features that were required uh, but didn't actually appear. Uh, And again, we see a pretty high percentage. So if in our company or agency, or whatever it is, uh, if our company or agency is representative of the sort of companies uh, that were the subject of this study, uh, then we would want to then look very carefully at whether we are somehow radically different from this, or if not, if we are sort of in the field, uh, then that would... uh, at least provide a fairly significant degree of evidence that uh, there is a lot of opportunity for improvement. Now, in terms of selling systems engineering, uh, I've talked about it being a general problem-solving approach and therefore uh, it's advantageous represented it as having application wherever uh, there is some non-trivial problem that needs a solution. Uh, in terms of specifics, uh, in Phases of activity, new product development, uh, correcting design deficiencies during production, uh, and uh, then in the modifications and enhancements uh, during the evolution of a system uh, through its operational uh, life as a, as a product, subject to uh, a number of releases. So it's not we won't. It is not uh, particularly helpful to represent it entirely as a an only upfront process. One of the things that's happening, clearly happening, is that systems engineering is being seen uh, and represented uh, as a set of principles and methods for engineering a huge diversity of things. And one of the most significant developments uh, is the emphasis on enterprise engineering. For example, INCOSE has uh, just, uh, well, recently, within last year, uh, commenced joint publication with another sponsor, uh, of a Journal of Enterprise Transformation, which is a sort of fashionable phrase, which which means enterprise improvement. Uh, And uh, if you look at some of the work that MITRE Corporation is doing, they in fact divide uh, their resources on systems engineering into three. Enterprise engineering, that is application of enterprise improvement. Acquisition engineering, uh, which uh, puts it in a sort of A lot of their business is government contracting, so it puts it in that that business context uh, and with a focus on the benefits to the customer, and and there's one other that we don't need to spend time on. So there is a strong trend towards seeing, representing and and acting upon systems engineering in a a wide diversity of applications uh, and right up to the highest levels of enterprises, uh, giving us business systems and uh, business... uh, uh, systems architecting, business systems improvement, and all the other uh, words that have exactly the same meaning. To uh, further reflect that, if you have a look at the BA BOC, if you haven't seen it, have a look at it. Uh, The BA BOC, the uh, Business Analysis Body of Knowledge, uh, published by the IIBA and uh, downloadable from their website, uh, you could only describe as a body of knowledge on systems engineering with an orientation within it towards application to business systems, that examples that are business systems examples. So once again, uh, systems theory is being acted upon and seen and acted upon by many people, uh, whether or not they are calling it that. Now, that represents also a very large pool uh, of historical evidence of value, or for that matter, any evidence of lack of value. Now, you will find evidence of practices that do not add value also, and they're the ones we should not be doing. Uh, USDOD projects figure strongly as a source of such evidence of practices that are not, in many cases, very effective. Some of the best, uh, most uh, demonstrably beneficial practices have their origins largely in the commercial sector. And the uh, the more competitive the commercial sector... So that generally means product orientation, uh, the, the greater the degree of uh, incidence benefit uh, that's being demonstrated. Oh. Now, some of the indicators and indeed uh, some of the ammunition that we might use if we were trying to make a case within our enterprise for benefit of systems engineering is this problem identification thing. So let's have a, let's have a look at firstly... Uh, Things going wonderfully. On, under or close to budget, of course. On or close to schedules for development and product release. High return on sales. Market leadership. Point at that. Low warranty costs. And repeat business as the norm. Now, anybody who had the idea of going to Apple and saying, you guys need a systems engineering revolution, you're screwing it up is destined to be thrown out, laughed out the door. But on the other hand, if these things are not the norm in our enterprise, then prima facie, there's a case for opportunity for improvement. And if that's the case, then we want the evidence that systems engineering can in fact contribute to that improvement. For a... Uh, oops, go to the next one. Contract-oriented enterprises, these, these are companies or enterprises that uh, do their engineering under contract, from uh, uh, generally a one-on-one customer-contractor relationship. So uh, just to run through, because these are very similar, we we don't need to spend a lot of time on these. But uh, again, the cost and schedule aspects. Uh, Good margin on contracts, uh, good gross margin, uh, and uh, net profit when we add overhead. Good high customer satisfaction. Again, warranty costs or uh, costs of that nature. Again, repeat business as a norm at a high level of staff satisfaction and retention are good indicators of effective systems engineering in that sort of business. Internal projects. Again, we have our usual cost and schedule things. High internal levels of customer satisfaction. So the uh, enterprise where everybody does everything they can to avoid placing a project on the IT department because they, they know they won't see anything for two and a half years, and what they get won't be what they need, uh, total opposite. Whoops, just go back. Sorry about that. Uh, one of the motivations to outsource, even though its historical performance has been pretty terrible, uh, is that the insourcing isn't working very well. So one of the indicators of, of uh, effective en- systems engineering within... Our organisation uh, is the absence of a desire to place the work outside. And then, of course, the, the same, staff satisfaction and retention issues, which are always good indicators. As far as uh, systems engineering management is concerned, uh, so we're now talking about not just doing the systems engineering, but also managing it, which is an important uh, contributing factor to success. Effective systems engineering, from the indicators we've seen, also the harnessing of creativity, creating, creating a knowledge-based um, enterprise uh, which uh, is becoming the, uh, uh, the, the business, business uh, uh, what's the right word, the uh, successful businesses of the present to a significant degree are knowledge-based and that trend is increasing at, a, at a, uh, an extremely high rate. A learning environment for the people within our enterprise growing enterprise assets in terms of intellectual assets, which is setting the preconditions for future success as, of, as opposed to current success. And, well, things are... I think, I think I'm, I'm not sure what I'm doing here, but I think it's probably me. It usually is. And then we have, uh, actually, the last one. Uh, it's one I haven't mentioned, but the, sh- the shared vision of people and a uh, uh, very strong ethic towards uh, uh, a vision uh, of... Uh, the company and what it does in society or what it does commercially. And again, I would refer to Apple as a really great example of that. Now, the opposite. Milestones missed. Product releases missed. Remember, a company in Melbourne uh, actually made uh, had high return on sales. Uh, No, no, wrong words. Had high sales growth, 15% per year sales growth. Their customers said they liked their products, but no matter what the company said about schedule, they would be late. And the company didn't make one cent over eight years of 15% sales growth. (sighs) Disputes with customers over requirements and failure to satisfy need. Man, is that common. Especially in the one-on-one customer-contractor business model or developing things that are not commercially successful uh, because of mismatch to what what the market needs. Not to the same degree, but also on our list, many delays during system integration. To give an example, a project called Jorn, a planned system integration phase of fifteen months, an actual system integration phase of five and a half years. Most of the work done in the actual system integration phase, not system integration. Most of it rework of things that had been done earlier but had been done poorly. In fact. A very telling moment on that project was three years into this 15-month system integration phase when somebody in the project asked, how do we turn this on? And there was a realisation this nationwide distributed system had been designed and built for steady state operation with no way of getting it to that steady state operation, which was quite a problem. I'm also reminded of the shipbuilding project in Italy at La Spezia, uh, where two ships were built upstream. This was in the early 80s. Two uh, two ships built upstream of a bridge. I don't need to go further. (laughs) Whether they became submarines or not, I'm not sure. Or maybe they just went to the scrapyard. I don't know what happened. So uh, they are very good indicators of very bad systems engineering or non-existent, if we might say. Many disputes with customers over-testing. The customer who says, I expect you to test this with 3 million messages and our testing budget allows for 100 and one is gross under-verification and the other is probably gross over-verification. Either way, we, we, no matter what, we're in big trouble. Whoever we are, whether we are customer or whether we're company, we are in big trouble. And then problems in the field, which, you know, we see, we hear about, we sometimes experience uh, major product recalls, costs huge amounts of money. Look at uh, the uh, e A380 engine from Rolls-Royce, uh, the design problem and the consequences of that to Rolls-Royce. Before they reached an agreement with Qantas over this uh, engine that d- had an uncontained failure in flight on an A380, just about wrote off the A380. Uh, it still isn't flying, but before they even reached a settlement with Qantas, that failure cost Rolls-Royce 64 million pounds. Rolls-Royce, two months later settled for another 95, or 94, million U.S. dollars with Qantas. Hugely expensive failure uh, and dispute with customers as a consequence as well. So that was very much major problems with the fielded system. Now, whether it reflected bad systems engineering, it certainly reflected a failure of the systems engineering, whether that was a, an understandable failure and just a, a nature of risk, or whether uh, it was uh, a bad failure of systems engineering, uh, I guess that story will unfold. Yes, John? No, of course, in fact, everybody, please do. Is, is yeah, absolutely uh customer just dis- "Oops, where are we problems there uh customer dissatisfaction loss of business uh, it is but it's not uh in in that uh well it depends quality with in whose eyes now delivering something that is a quality product in the customer's eyes that that is something that's fit very fit for the intended use fantastic for the customer's use but with economics that bankrupt the company is not good engineering for the company. Good engineering as a charity for the customer, but not for the company. So for the company stakeholder, uh, it would not. we might call it, uh, we, we might say it's a high-quality product, uh, but in reality, uh, it's not a high-quality product in terms of the measures of quality of the company, which are which, uh, the influences on profit and other value company outcomes. So we, to recall the chart that I showed, I think, second chart, uh, there is a very strong relationship between benefit to customer, benefit to company. But if we're on the right-hand side of that curve that went up to a peak and then down again, over the peak we're acting as a charity and across the baseline we're actually uh, operating uh, at loss uh, and threatening the very existence of our company. And neither... Operating on neither of those parts of that curve makes any sense whatsoever, unless our values are act as a charity, in which case we don't use just money on the y-axis. We use other values that we have to to properly represent what the company values. Guys, uh, I'm really glad that John's raise a question, I will encourage you to just interrupt or um, raise a question or uh, raise anything for discussion uh, with me or with the group at any point through the presentation. A lot of back-end loading. In fact, you see it all the time. You know, always uh, time and money to fix the problems. We have to, but often not time and money to do the upfront work that uh, tends to prevent the problems and uh, one of the traits of experienced uh, inexperienced i should say uh, managers uh, is to be resistant to that sort of balance but the evidence uh, of the return on investment of that more front end loaded form of engineering is is becoming very persuasive and we'll see some of that now one of the things we want to be able to do in a company uh, or any other enterprise that does engineering is know where we spend the money. And uh, being able to populate this chart uh, is very, very desirable. If we don't, how do we measure investment in, uh, or the return on investment, in change? How do we estimate what's available to us? Let's run through these Proportion of uh, development costs spent on genuine requirements changes. Well, those changes simply represent the reality of a changing world. So... Uh, if it is beneficial to us to actually solve the problem as currently exists rather than as it was, uh, then it's certainly not a reflection on engineering. It's not bad engineering uh, to spend more money to accommodate what is it now a new and changed problem. So there is no ideal figure, but we want to know what that is. And that allows us to plan, uh, decide on styles of development, evolutionary development, if it's evolutionary build size or agile development, in some cases, there's a form of evolutionary development. Proportion of the developments cost spent on defective system requirements. That is, not genuinely change requirements, but requirements that were simply missing, ambiguous, in a, in, factually incorrect, and so on. Now, if we don't know what we're spending on that, or... If we don't know the multiplier effects, let me add, uh, of that, not just in uh, the cost of development but any consequential effects, uh, we don't know whether there is a requirements problem and how much that is costing us. There's a lot of industry norm data, but we ourselves need to know that for for our company and uh, our projects. Proportion of development cost spent due to design errors undetected in design reviews or other design verification activities. That again uh, gives us uh, information on op- whether there is opportunity for improvement uh, and an ability to predict return on investment from different or additional verification activities. Spent on designers and detecting system testing. Same comments, but different form of verification. And then uh, I mentioned that Jorn project. The proportion of cost spent uh, in system integration phase. Uh, that is actually system integration work as opposed to rework. Now, the ideal is 100%. uh, A totally failed project uh, might give us 0% or close to 0%, very low figures. So we need to know those sorts of numbers and uh, we uh, would like to know those numbers as as an engineering manager and as a capable project manager on an ongoing basis, real-time basis more or less, uh, as our projects proceed. Those numbers give us uh, very strong pointers to problem areas and areas where we would want to take corrective action or exploit opportunities. Let's now examine uh, the results of an NDI, uh, CMI, or a uh, Carnegie Mellon University, I should say, uh, SEI. It's uh, called Software Engineering Institute, but it's software and systems uh, study on the effectiveness of systems engineering. Uh, And this is really the first study, to my knowledge, it's certainly the the first one that uh, seems to be available, uh, that was conducted on a solid scientific basis on the uh, effectiveness or otherwise of systems engineering practices. We see three categories uh, of projects and uh, the percentage of projects in those categories classified with lower, moderate and higher systems engineering capability. We'll talk about the basis of those lower, moderate and higher uh, classifications a little bit later. You see the figures there. Uh, Lower project performance um, falling from low to medium and high. Moderate performance uh, increasing uh, but being then replaced by high performance as we move to high levels of systems engineering capability. Uh, And this was done on a a substantial survey. I forget the number of companies, but it was was in the uh, many, many, many tens of companies and projects. So if this were reliable data, it's it's fairly conclusive uh, as far as an overall trend towards benefit uh, from higher levels of systems engineering capability. Now, I mentioned we'd have a, uh, a talk about the basis of such measurement, The studies that are going on are mostly being based on the CMMI, Capability Maturity Model Integration. Some of you will be familiar with that. Some may not be. In fact, I know some people will not be. Uh, It is a, a model, a process reference model, that was to be the integration of a software process capability reference model and a systems process capability reference model. It ended up making no distinction between physical systems and software, so it is, in fact, an overall engineering process-related capability reference model. And uh, it defines uh, levels of uh, of observable practices which, when it was developed, were thought and asserted to correlate with enterprise performance. Now, at that time of development, there was no, none of the scientifically-based evidence that they did, in fact, correlate. But there were a lot of people's experiences, a lot of deduction from studying projects of what went wrong what went right. So these ca- things came into existence. Uh, i summarised the basis of the CMMI, and this is common to pretty much the odd alternatives that also exist. So uh, although it is a, a CMMI list, uh, it's general for across most of the capability maturity models. And uh, down the bottom there, we have the lowest level of practice, level one, ad hoc, chaotic, lack of planning, very reactive as opposed to proactive, uh, little in the way of records, uh, very uh, disorganised, repeatable, basic project management, essentially. Uh, Basics of risk management, counting time, counting money, basic configuration management, you know, a, a set of basic sound practices that's strongly project management oriented. Level three, what they call uh, defined, well there, defined processes. So for example, if we design things, we have defined processes for doing so. And uh, very likely we have processes that are defined that in these circumstances we design in this way with these is supporting us, this type of modelling, if we do modelling. Uh, and in other circumstances, if we're doing a letterbox at home, we do it differently. Uh, so not a one-size-fits-all uh, set of uh, defined processes necessarily, unless we always do the same thing. But uh, uh, selective and uh, uh, astute uh, defined processes match to different c- c- circumstances, different situations. Managed there... Measurement, beyond just counting time and counting money, focus on metrics. Key metrics used to give us early indications of things going right, things going wrong. They could be product metrics, process metrics, more commonly a mixture of the two. And in the extreme, they could be more uh, refined uh, use of metrics such as Six Sigma, which has been very nicely integrated with systems entering practices and has demonstrated considerable uh, success uh, in, in that integration. And then lastly, the optimising level, where we now, since we now have metrics, we have created the opportunity to use metrics to drive up the performance of our organisation. Now, the the practices that are generally regarded uh, or associated with systems engineering in doing the systems engineering are mostly across there. Now, these models don't just, say, do good engineering, but they are quite detailed in uh, defining specific practices For example, doing uh, requirements management, uh, technical solution development, verification, validation, and then very detailed uh, criteria for practices in those areas and all the other areas that one would imagine. This reference model, uh, strongly systems engineering structured as it is, has been used as the basis for assessing uh, correlation or otherwise between project performance and systems engineering practices in, the, in recent years. And uh, the study that I mentioned used it. The new study that I've alluded to is also using the same reference model, and there are other studies that have done the same, although not necessarily with the same degree of science involved. Now, let's have a look at the results of the CMMI completed study. They've uh, What they did uh, was build a, an overall project performance metric combining cost, schedule, and as John mentioned, product quality, and product quality being fitness for intended use. They weighted uh, the relative contributions within the overall performance measure of those. I, I think they, if I recall correctly, they their weights were very similar. Now, what they then did uh, was to look at practices on projects, look at project performance in those terms, outcomes in those terms, and develop correlation coefficients. And they did that aligned to the basic practices structure of the Capability Maturity Model, as, as I, uh, I described the basic concept of that model. And then the, here we have a list of specific practice areas or uh, process areas uh, against which they develop correlation coefficients. to illustrate a correlation coefficient let's say that we had well uh, no, I'll just do it with five projects one two three four five six seven eight nine ten and let's say I'll just use cost uh, I don't want to you know, for a moment imply the cost is, is the only measure it's far from it but I'll just use cost as a simple example so let's say uh, SE no, SE yes, and uh, let's say cost performance uh, in terms of, uh, let's say, overrun as a percentage. So these first five, let's say they're SE no's. So that's uh, that one, that one, that one, that one, that one. Uh, And let's say these were all 50% cost overruns. SE yeses which is 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, uh, and let's say these are all 30% cost overruns. In that case, the correlation coefficient between SE practice and uh, versus no SE practice would be 1. It will be a positive correlation coefficient. Now, if these were all over the place and the average of these for the first group and the second group were the same, the correlation coefficient will be 0. If in fact these were all fifty and these were all thirty, the correlation coefficient will be minus one. And the conclusion there will be very decisive if if there were enough samples, and that is this systems entering practice is massively counterproductive, consistently counterproductive, and we shouldn't be entertaining it. Okay, so that's what those numbers mean. That's that's the background to those correlation coefficients. Now you see the the numbers there. One is Perfect correlation. Zero is no correlation, so it's pretty, it's pretty much irrelevant doing this stuff. One way, It doesn't matter one way or the other, except it costs money, so that matters. Now, let's have a look at these. Interestingly, uh, project planning has a very weak positive correlation coefficient. Also, the next one, project management control has a very weak correlation coefficient. Well, that says the CMMI as a a basis of practices for planning and project management uh, is pretty ordinary, just to say the least. Interestingly, the vision for CMMI is that at the moment it's a systems and software engineering integration. It's an engineering process reference model. uh, And the vision for it was, and I believe remains, to actually integrate to become a project project performance reference model with a serious project management content which it doesn't have. So we wouldn't want to get too excited about doing the CMMI stuff regarding uh, project planning and uh, project control uh, alone and think that that's going to help us produce great results on our projects. The evidence would not suggest that to be the case. On the other hand, we get down to risk management. Well, that's looking a lot more favourable. Your know, Point three is... Quite significant. That sort of improvement compared with not doing something is very significant. And similarly, we see requirements development and management it's quite significant. Conduct of trade-off studies quite significant. Architecting, architectural development very significant. Overall technical solution development again very very significant. Product integration, it's a bit of a funny one that, but it's it's moderately it's it's modest. It's positive at least. V&V, yeah, not bad, but not great. But certainly a lot better doing them and not doing them. So the statement, uh, oh, we're not, going to do desi- we're not going to do design reviews because it'll save money in time, doesn't cut any ice on that data. Configuration management only weekly positive. Now, that's very interesting. That either says it's we shouldn't be doing it or well, it doesn't say we shouldn't be doing it but says there's not huge value in doing it uh, or it says that the CMMI is not strong in that area. Uh, I suspect it's the latter. and you know, There are weak areas at least in my view of CMMI just as there are strong areas. I'll we'll touch on them shortly. Uh, and then the way in which we organise ourselves and, and do our work uh, in teams in relation to product development and again we've got quite reasonable correlation. Now note these, this study and the study results are on a process reference model that I don't think anybody would seriously claim is any, in any sense an icon of virtue. And if you put 50 systems engineers, you know, pe- perhaps people who would be seen as leaders in the field of systems engineering in a room, you would come away and ask them to do a critique of CMMI, you would come away with many areas of comfort but many areas of serious concern. So nobody would reasonably claim that CMMI represents, uh, always believed to represent by many people uh, who who at least are experienced in the field, icons of virtue. It's a product of a committee development uh, and there is always time lag between uh, standards uh, and current thinking and, and recent experience. I have very serious concerns... With arguably uh, three of the most important areas in CMMI: requirements management, which where what is there is is fine, but it is it is what is not there that is massively deficient. What is there is hopelessly inadequate. Technical solution development, it's a bit of a muddle. Big problems there, but on that data, it's certainly not without value. So. Those numbers, with those, uh, those correlation coefficients, to me, suggest A, we're very much on the right track, and B, we have a lot of opportunity for further improvement. And I'm sure that that will be the way things will play out over the next decade or so, and particularly with respect to capability maturity models. What we have here at the moment, however, is pretty persuasive evidence of being better off Doing this stuff, even with whatever qualifications we might raise regarding the CMMI practices, mostly we're better off doing this stuff significantly than not doing it, as opposed to having a set of negative coefficients which would say we're wasting our time. We're not on the right track at all. Pretty persuasive evidence. Another part of the study was to look at the uh, degree of challenge, degree of Uh, complexity, degree of novelty, the time pressures uh, on on projects and to develop a correlation coefficient between project performance and the degree of project challenge. Now, this was done in a fairly basic way of dividing projects into two groups, challenging projects and not challenging projects. Now that's a sort of it's a pretty crude distinction, but it, it, I mean it, it's re- it's a reasonable distinction, but it doesn't give us huge amount of information. But as we see, uh, the correlation coefficient is exactly as we'd expect uh, a negative correlation between project performance, the challenge, the project, the challenging projects performing uh, significantly less well than the ch- projects that are not challenging. So that again, if if it does nothing else, it uh, provides a significant degree of validation of the soundness of the study uh, in that uh, everything is coming out uh, from the study uh, in what you would regard as a logical and consistent set of numbers. Now, what they then did with the uh, challenging group of projects is look at the correlation coefficients for that group. So what we're now looking at is the effectiveness of systems engineering applied to easier projects versus harder projects. So let's have a look at that, which is actually the next sheet, I think. Let me see. Yep, it's so the next sheet. Let me. We'll come back to that one. Oops, no, it's not. Ah, no, here we go. Yep, it is. It is. It is the right one. So the first one, um, overall uh, correlation coefficient, total systems engineering capability, bringing together all those process areas, uh, and an overall. Uh, plus 0.32 correlation coefficient, which is certainly significantly positive. Now, when this was reduced to two of the process areas, uh, the requirements management, so it's two of that list of whatever it was, 15 or 17, uh, requirements management and the solution development, the uh, correlation of those two alone was a higher correlation coefficient again. And uh, when that was limited for those two to the more challenging projects, then the correlation coefficient was much higher again. And uh, that's getting seriously high. So what that is saying is that, although there's certainly plenty of opportunity for improvements, 0.621 is a lot of opportunity, But it's also saying that for the more challenging projects, the practices of requirements management and technical solution development, as defined in the Capability Maturity Model, uh, are, are significantly beneficial for the group of projects studied. Very significant data, very significant conclusion. Again, very strong evidence that we are seriously on the right track. Now to use uh, another study source, a study done in Brazil, a very interesting study, uh, a bit broader uh, in its reference and uh, more project management oriented, although I would add that we can regard anybody in a project planning role as uh, the systems engineer of the project system, and that's a very useful way of looking at things. Uh, so this one uh, looked uh, at maturity of the organisation uh, on a scale very similar to the CMM scales, CMMI scale and the general scale that we saw earlier uh, and looked at the balance of success, failure uh, and partial success uh, at the three levels. And uh, you see the success figures consistently going up and becoming fairly substantial, partially successful, fairly similar, falling a little, being replaced by success and the failed projects percentage reducing consistently up the scale. Now, in that the reference remains the CMM architecture uh, with, at level three, the process activities that are strongly represented systems engineering. Uh, Again, it's very significant data. I haven't provided data in this presentation on it, but the McKinsey Group did a very interesting study. They didn't use the CMMI reference levels, they use their own defined levels for uh, representative levels of enterprise practice, for which they developed uh, correlations. They found that at the equivalent of CMM level one, worst performance commercially, lowest market share, uh, and lowest growth in sales. They found at level their level two, which is pretty close to CMMI level two basic project management, planning, configuration management, 7% higher profitability. The level one companies were only just surviving. They were just marginally positive, just half a percent or something. 7% higher profitability in that group. And higher market share and higher rate of sales growth. Now, as we go up the scale to the top of the scale, the most profitable companies were at the top with highest market share and with greater sales growth. There was absolutely unqualified correlation up the scale. And given that, that the scale has a very strong alignment with systems engineering practices, then again, uh, although I haven't included it here, it's a pretty persuasive evidence, at least in general. This NASA study is rather interesting. It shows NASA's experience. It's it's been widely seen this, but it's it's definitely worth discussing. It shows NASA's experience purely on cost. Now, of cost without a useful outcome, a useful product, is (laughs) not a terribly useful measure, but at least it's one aspect. And uh, you see NASA's experience of cost overrun against uh, what they call definition ratio. And this definition ratio is essentially the proportion of money spent up front to get to the point of being able to go to contract for things like a space shuttle or a command centre or a launch facility or whatever it may be uh, over the budget at the time of going to contract. It's an up front effort measure. Well, you see NASA's experience. Below about 5%, consistently very high cost overruns you see in the range of 5 up to about 8% clear trend downwards and then 8 to 13 or 15 it's a bit you know, it's hard to draw conclusions there because of the fairly low number of data points also very interestingly nasa attributes 70% of their cost overruns to requirements problems and requirements problems are mainstream what is regarded as fundamental systems engineering stuff uh, there has been a a point of view expressed that the NASA data uh, doesn't really provide any, anything that one could draw conclusions on uh, regarding the value of systems engineering. I, t- I take an entirely different point of view on that when you look at NASA's uh, attribution uh, of the reasons uh, for their cost overruns. You'll notice also that there's nothing below the line, at least amongst that set of projects, never a cost overrun, a cost underrun. And Cozy did a study that, in a way, precipitated the more seriously conducted studies. Uh, I'm a little nervous in in sharing the data because the study was not conducted in a very scientific way, but I I think we can draw some sort of conclusion from it. Uh, Again, this looked only at cost. There are two pages, a cost page and a schedule page. It didn't look at product quality, which is unfortunate, but at least it throws some light on cost and uh, schedule performance, it uh, looked at 45 projects and compared the cost overruns or underruns, cost performance, against the amount of systems engineering effort. Now you see there, SE effort equals SE quality by SE cost over actual cost. The SE quality was a 10 to 0 metric where... 10 was rated as fantastic systems engineering and zero was rated as none. And all the points in between undefined. Fantastic was also undefined. None was pretty much much, more or less self-evident, I suppose. Uh, And then SE cost was also an undefined term. So that's why I say I'm a bit nervous in in sharing this or drawing too much conclusion from it because the, the terms were undefined in a survey uh, and so what if they mean whatever the people who can fill, in, fill in the survey forms interpret them to mean in their context, uh, which doesn't lead to a great deal of confidence in what, whatever conclusions we can draw. Nevertheless, uh, we do see a basic trend downwards with more SE effort, whatever that term means. Now, if the trend went the other way, if it went like that, well, it would be a very clear conclusion. Again, we're absolutely wasting our time. We shouldn't be doing this stuff. We're fooling ourselves. So at least it does throw some very weak, but nevertheless, some evidence on value of systems engineering. And then you'll find something broadly comparable for the schedule one, the b- bigger range. Same comments apply. What I'd like to address in conclusion and uh, is something in much more detail, uh, and that is to look at a particular facet of systems engineering, uh, and that is. Return on investment in the activity of requirements analysis uh, and develop some uh, uh, more comprehensive return on investment data, some of it from actual projects. Now, when we should go back. When we talk about requirements analysis, we're talking about an activity that is concerned with capturing and validating requirements, establishing whether the requirements are already adequate, and if they're not adequate, doing something about that, turning the inadequate into the adequate. That's the scope of requirements analysis. And there are ways of doing that. So it's a, it's a part of the uh, the way to do that, uh, efficiently, effectively, uh, is a part of the, the discipline, the body of knowledge of systems engineering. Now, I've shown there a process diagram just to illustrate the sort of stuff that it involves. I would add that there would not be 10% of that content uh, in the... Well, the CMMI calls requirements management, which is the closest it gets to that activity. So that is perhaps an illustration of the point I was making about the content of uh, that process area of CMM being what is there being okay, but being nowhere near sufficient. Oops! (coughs) What's happening here? What's happening? Okay, there we go. Now, I think it was Drucker who said something like, you can't control what you can't measure. If you can't measure requirements quality, then we're sort of playing around a bit uh, and doing a lot of guesswork uh, in uh, trying to control it. So we want to be able to measure it. We can measure it, fortunately. And uh, what I've shown here is uh, a scale, a zero to one scale. Uh, The scale is a requirements quality metric scale. Now, if anybody's interested in how to do such a measurement, uh, I'd be happy to, uh, by email, send you a description of chapter and verse and, in fact, a file, an Excel file of an actual measurement pretty big file, but it's a real one. Now down um, on the bottom there, zero represents garbage, requirements garbage. One represents perfect requirements. You can't get perfect requirements, but you can get pretty close if you need to do so. Any set of requirements on this technical scale has some quality value, and I've shown there a quality value of 0.5. Now, when we calibrate this scale against a set of circumstances, uh, here, if a couple of the factors apply of, firstly, developers who are relying on written requirements largely to know what to develop, secondly, something that's of at least modest importance, thirdly, contracts superimpose that create a, uh, a motivation to uh, take, a, say, a more literal interpretation of requirements, And then lastly, some at least moderate degree of novelty in the requirements, not just the same thing as last time. If a couple of those factors apply, then this calibration applies. And there's enough data, historical data, to do the calibration. So that point three there represents a transition between a high level of requirements related risk, that is risks arising from defects in the requirements, versus a medium level. And we have this other transition up the top here, uh, where the band there is a low level of requirements related risk. So we measure the quality, which takes typically about an hour and a half, two hours for a person or two people. So it's, it's low cost stuff to do that. Now our next concern is do we have a problem? So we look at the quality we need in the circumstances. If we're going out to buy a new car, we can do that with great confidence without any written requirements. But if we're not buying cars, we're doing engineering. So we assess the quality that's needed, and that's again in a set of circumstances. So that the two here correspond, the calibration there and the need figure up there correspond. So we need point nine, and that means work to get from what we have up to what we need. And that work is a work of system requirements analysis. And that work is uh, putting aside changing requirements over time. That work is strongly upfront activity before a lot of development takes place. Now, a pretty serious question is how much work? I've uh, indicated there a number of the the influences on that. The quality we have, whoops, have, quality we need, the number of requirements. So if we're doing a requirements analysis on a new marker pen, it's a lot less work than doing it on a uh, an armoured personnel carrier or a high-speed train. Skills of the people doing the work is a big influence. The tech environment within which the work is done and the degree of access to and cooperation of the stakeholders. These are the major variables that affect the amount of work to take the requirements from what we have to what we need. I don't have... Uh, the actual figures, but let me give them to you verbally and uh, if anybody wants them on email, I can provide them, uh, as to what this means in practice. Let's take the situation where these red figures uh, apply and where these blue figures or or blue uh, parameters are uh, at least moderately favourable. Again, there is enough history to tell us that in those circumstances, that is where the job is being done by people with reasonable skills, with reasonable technical support, I mean software support, and that is, modelling tools, uh, and reasonable access and cooperation, I'm going to express the figure in terms of percentage of total project cost, and that's cost to successful development. So it's not including the cost of packaging and distributing 200 million copies of Microsoft Office or uh, a million new Toyota something or others, but to development. Point one, 0.1, to 2% is pretty much the range. Almost everything falls within that range if those parameters that I've described there apply. Now, let's look, I think I've got my sequence right here, at the history of cost overruns attributed to requirements problems. Now, this is just a very small sample of a huge body of data. We've talked about the NASA figure attributing 70% of their cost overruns to requirements problems. US Census Bureau project, very recent one, 80% cost overrun locked in solely due to poor requirements. In fact, that project essentially failed. There was a sort of token deal done so it delivered something so it could be claimed not to have totally failed, but it essentially failed. Uh, I would add that the customer two years into development and six months away from production, rocked up with 200 requirements changes. This uh, helicopter project claimed by Lockheed, 83% cost overrun caused by requirements problems. Some more general statements, and uh, then the uh, Standish report, 609 of the 89% cost overrun that that report concluded and reported attributed to requirements problems. Now, these are huge numbers. If those numbers that I shared with you, 0.1 to 2%, are valid numbers for avoiding that or even a significant proportion of it, that is pointing to very high return on investment. In fact, I wish just once in my business career I could find a size investment that produced that return. That would be wonderful. I'd still be doing this, but I'd be doing it in a greater degree of comfort <laughs> and flying first class with emirates rather than summing it with Qantas every now and again. John, how many counter cases would you like me to share with you? <laughs> uh, yeah, I know you are. <laughs> and it's a, and it's a good, very good point, because you know, with risk to the company from bad requi- customer requirements, there is also opportunity. But if you have a look at the history, the Cases of realisation of risk are much more common than significant realisation of opportunity. Uh, And uh, I'm not going to spend the time here going through endless examples, but if anybody's interested, I'll I'll provide as many as you like. Uh, To perhaps put it in this way, I did nine on-site five-day requirements analysis and spec writing courses uh, for companies worldwide last year, and every one of them had the same story. And it was that they wanted to better understand their customers' needs in order to better satisfy their customers' needs in order to avoid the wars of attrition, the disputes, the delayed payments uh, and the loss of business through customer dissatisfaction both with that customer and the knock-on effect with other customers. Now, we will come back, John, to a table that goes further uh, into that subject. But I would add, if... We have an in it, customer and um, a company who uh, is very skillful at exploiting a customer, then a company can make a lot of money out of requirements changes. Whether it does that in the long term, some, some do. A company in a monopoly situation, uh, of course can make heaps of money. But uh, even companies in monopoly situations generally don't stay in monopoly situations. I have a client in las vegas uh <laughs> who was uh, in that situation. I need to be careful here uh they're, they're, i mean they were they exploited their monopoly situation they their performance with their customer kept going down and the customer eventually said, "Well, I've had bad news for you. We're competing in the next contract, and uh if your performance doesn't improve, you're out uh and uh what actually happened is that they lost half the business. So uh, it was really, really bad for them. Now, let's move on to the next data. Let me just get things right here, that one. Let's have a look at uh, an actual case. And this is uh, for a $4 billion shipbuilding project, project called the Anzac Ship Project. There were 27,000 requirements on this ship, should have been about 12,000, full of design, that shouldn't have been there, but 27,000 requirements. Uh, only fair. Now, 27,000 requirements only fair means um, about an... Well, really conservatively, uh, about an hour per requirement to fix them. All like an hour and a half, but I'll use an hour. If you multiply 27,000 hours by the cost of labour, you end up with... In fact, when I say an hour to fix them. You end up with $3.4 million, but that's for one aspect of fixing what is there. The whole of a requirements analysis is about uh, six on four times that. So uh, that gives us, if it's not six on four, it adds six on four. So that gives us about $8 million of requirements analysis cost to fix uh, overall 27,000 only fair requirements and bring them up to a low-risk standard. Now, $8 million in a $4 billion project, 0.2% of total contract value. The alternative, don't do anything. Just go into development. Well, again, there's a lot of history. So That standard stuff is just a tiny bit of it, but there is a lot of history that tells us what we should expect. We've seen some of the stuff in the previous chart. Uh, uh, I'm sorry, not the previous one, the one before that, I think it was. Anyway... Uh, 70% overruns, and so on. In this case, you would expect about 20%, again conservatively. Actually, more like 30%. uh, Either cost overrun, in fact, more than that in cost overrun, uh, 20% more like 30% in, in reality, loss of capability. Unless we fix those requirements. Spending $8 million to avoid something that we're paying $800 million for in terms of capability as a customer is actually a very high return on investment. Not that the customer feels fantastic as they spend their $8 million, they feel pretty unhappy about it. But the alternative is hugely worse. Now, very interestingly here in this project, they didn't do anything. They went straight into development, but the project became an absolute mess. It was chaos. There were issues everywhere. And the contractor and the the customer, eventually, 18 months into this project, reached the point almost despairing and got together and said, we can't go on like this. And they decided, 18 months into this project, to redirect their effort away from this chaotic development with issues everywhere to redefining what they were trying to develop. And they did that. They had a team of 60-plus people spending nine months redefining the requirements and it saved the project. The project was fairly late, but it delivered a pretty reasonable capability. It certainly didn't suffer a 30% loss of capability, it was probably about 15, but it it saved the project. Now, in terms of the return on investment there, seriously high. Let's come back to John's point about, well, what about a company? Is there anything in it for a company if they would spend their money? Let's have a look at that. Most companies uh, in the systems business, as opposed to the product business, uh, where it's higher, spend about 12.5% on average, that sort of number, on marketing. Uh, of that 12.5%, 2 or 3% is, is spent on positioning, branding, leaving 9 or 10% spent on bidding. The better companies win one in two, one in three, one in four, those sort of numbers, meaning the total cost per bid uh, in terms of percent of total contract value for the more successful companies averages out two to three percent, and that's a cost of winning business. There is a rule of thumb that has a traceable origin, uh, which is why I'm happy to quote it, uh, that it takes about five times the amount of investment money to win X dollars of new business from a new customer compared with winning X dollars new business from an existing satisfied customer. Firstly, where the business exists, and secondly, where there is some sort of competition in the marketplace. Now, if the company spent their eight million dollars fixing their customers' twenty-seven thousand bad requirements, that is, po- ooh, ooh, wrong one, go back. Uh, that is, point two percent of con- total contract value to make the difference between significantly alienating their customer versus um, achieving a very high degree of customer satisfaction, that could, for a company, be a good investment. If you look at the marketing costs to win replacement business versus the cost of alienation, that could be a very good investment. Now, clearly, from what I mentioned earlier, many companies, and I'm talking about some big companies and name companies, you know the names of them, some of them anyway, I'm sure, uh, have drawn that conclusion and are doing exactly that. They are uh, building requirements analysis skills to do requirements analysis to and, and substantiate up front to better understand what their customer needs to avoid all the problems that they're having from failing to do so. As a closing example... I cringed as I watched on national television an admiral of the Australian Navy ridicule the Australian Submarine Corporation for failing to supply a submarine that they should have known was needed. A submarine that was developed under a fixed-price contract to a requirement awarded by competitive tender and to a requirement specification provided by the Royal Australian Navy. That did not come close to adequately stating what was needed. Now that ridicule on national television was accompanied about a week later by the Royal Malaysian Navy, which was negotiating with the Australian Submarine Corporation to buy submarines, terminating those negotiations. Now, I don't have evidence, I don't have I, I, I can speculate. Uh, I find it an interesting coincidence. What I can say unequivocally. Is that that ridiculing of that company did them enormous commercial damage, irrespective of that large Royal Malaysian Navy contract. It did enormous damage to that company. Yes, that's the one. Not only noisy. Uh, <laughs> in fact, the requirements problem that for that one was that it was it was required to have a low noise mode. It was required to have certain modes of travel through the water. Uh, but it got it. That wasn't the only requirements problem. It thousands of others, but it got his low noise mode in a mode of travel through the water, which was not the one needed. And uh, <laughs> that was not good. So this is uh, at least one aspect. Uh, what's that got to do with it? <laughs> <laughs> they should have known. And no matter how unfair the uh, the vitriolic criticism was, uh, the fact of it is that it was made and it was very damaging. You know, throw mud at sticks, and no matter how unfair the throwing may be. Now, of course, it wasn't totally unfair because they didn't do what they should have in their commercial self-interest done. <laughs> That's interesting. I, I'm not surprised that somebody started to desert the ship, and, uh, or oh, sorry, the aircraft. <laughs> not at all surprised. That project is a shambles. Not only for requirements, but it's, it's certainly a shambles. Oh, sorry about that. I've done it again. Oh, no. I, th- I, think, we're, I think we're actually um, pretty close to the end. I'm not sure that we uh, need those last couple of slides. Okay. Sudra is doing wonderful things here. Okay, conclusions. That's where we're at. There's a lot of evidence that uh, the practice of systems engineering can be pretty immature. We've talked about all sorts of disasters. Uh, or maybe the practice of engineering, but not using as much systems engineering content as we will be justified in doing, uh, and there's also now very compelling evidence, and with a lot more to come, uh, regarding uh, systems engineering practices contributing to improve project performance uh, in terms of cost, schedule, and quality. As a general uh, sort of finishing comment, as engineers, uh, we like to think about engineering things and we focus often on technical things, which is all very good, but being able to do systems engineering very well is, uh, is uh, not enough unless we have support from those who make decisions that allow us or don't allow us uh, to do it. And so that means having persuasive evidence, building cases based on uh, the values that the decision makers and the enterprises have, which are often commercial, uh, and therefore making cases in those terms. Fortunately, the, the volume of evidence that we can draw upon uh, and, and examples that we can draw upon has increased enormously in the last three years. And it is now way, way easier than it has ever been to make a good case for doing systems engineering in most contexts. Guys, uh, any discussion? Any questions? No, ha, we? I'm, I'm, I'm preaching to the converted. <laughs> but hopefully some ideas have come out of this, at least for the converted, as to how to sell the message. If, if that happens from, from this little presentation, uh, that will be good. <laughs> That's a, how true. <laughs> yes, but we recovered pretty well. <laughs> thanks very much, guys. Thanks, thanks for your interest.